What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have an interesting, different, and very exciting show today where I'm bringing on the show... Dr. Tina Tran and Dr. Steve Beaudry, two of our fantastic attendings here at Johns Hopkins. And what we're going to do for you is try to take you through an oral board exam STEM, part of it, the intra-op portion, in two separate ways. First, Dr. Tran is going to go through it, or I will be the examiner, and I will take her through it with the attempt for her to show you what not to do. So she is going to she has compiled in her preparation a group of uh, kind of mistakes that she's used to seeing people make when they do oral board practice. And she's going to try to kind of make all those mistakes as we go through this 15-minute segment. And then we'll do a little commentary. Uh, We'll point out some of the things that she did that we think uh, ideally one would not do. And then Dr. Beaudry, who heads up our oral board preparation program here, is going to give us a shining example of the ideal way to do this. And he's going to try to show you all of the good techniques that he would ideally use when doing your oral boards. Now, some of you out there listening are not anesthesia residents and therefore aren't going to be taking oral boards, but there's still it's an interesting case, which you'll hear about in a second, and uh, you may be able to uh, enjoy listening anyway. All right. Dr. Tran, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's jump right in. I'm going to read. This is, uh, and just a quick review, the way the oral boards work are that you have two separate questions and two separate sessions. The first session counterintuitively is actually an intra-op and then post-op and then the second session is pre-op intra-op that's just how it works in terms of time and so during your first session which is intra-op and post-op you're given a lot of information on your sheet that they give you about the pre-op portion since you won't be doing it session two again is pre-op intra-op and so all you get for session two is a short little stem and that's what we're doing here an example of session two so we'll read the short little stem and that's all you'll be given when you show up for session two and with that short little stem they'll then start asking you pre-op questions we're not going to do the pre-op portion we're going to go then to what would be next which is the intra-op portion the pre-op portion which we're skipping you have 10 minutes for the intra-op portion you have 15 minutes for and then at On both session one and session two, there's a grab bag. Those are additional topics for 10 minutes. They can throw anything at you. So that's the structure of oral boards. Again, what we're doing today is the intra-op portion. That's a 15-minute portion from a session two STEM question. All right, so the little blurb that you will get and that we are operating off is this. You have a 30-year-old, 110-kilogram, 5-foot, 7-inch woman who is scheduled for a repeat C-section at term pregnancy. Her history includes asymmetric septal hypertrophy, known as IHSS, and mental depression. And by that, they mean clinical depression. Medications include propranolol and amitriptyline. Chest X-ray and EKG demonstrate left ventricular hypertrophy. 
Her pulse is 64. Her blood pressure is 130 over 85. Her respiratory rate is 18. Her temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. And her hemoglobin is 10.4 grams per deciliter. And that's it. That's what you get. So if Tina were actually taking this in the real oral boards, she would have that stem. She'd have about 10, 15 minutes to sit and take notes on what she thinks are the important things uh, that will be asked of her. And then she'll go into her room. She'll spend 10 minutes getting pre-op questions, and we're skipping that. And now we're going to move right into where she would be for the second 15 minutes, and that's intra-op management. All right. So, Dr. Tran, does this patient require any special monitoring? Um, I guess I could probably get away with uh, just the standard ASA monitors. I don't really see any anything that's uh, really significant about this patient to have me place any standard mon- any other monitors. Okay, a colleague suggests that you place an arterial catheter and a PA catheter. Do you agree? I, I wouldn't necessarily agree. At, at my institution, we don't really need an arterial catheter or PA catheter. Our OBGYNs uh, are really good surgeons, so they don't really lose a lot of blood, and our patients are always stable. So, no, I disagree with my colleague. So you would not place an arterial line or a PA catheter? That is correct. Why might one place a PA catheter in this case? Uh, I guess you could place an arterial catheter if you think there's going to be some hemodynamic instability, if you need to draw frequent arterial catheter blood work, um, and then for a PA catheter, if you suspect uh, you'll need a lot of resuscitation or uh, if you need pressors to be administered. But honestly, I don't even think that's going to be the case, so I I wouldn't even consider it. All right. How will you induce anesthesia in this patient? Uh, I guess I could do an IV induction, I would give her propofol and succinylcholine. Why would you do that? Uh, For patients who are uh, pregnant, they usually have a full stomach or assume they have a full stomach. So propofol and uh, succinylcholine provide a rapid onset, and I can do an RSI for the patient. And why would you want to do an RSI? Uh, Well, like I said, it's because the patients, I assume the patients to be full stomach. So I want to uh, get the tube in as quickly as possible. Okay. How would your choice of uh, approach to induction affect a patient with IHSS or asymmetric septal hypertrophy? Um, In all honesty, I don't know exactly what that is. I'm assuming it's not going to be any different from a patient who doesn't have a lot of uh, cardiac issues. Um, I'm going to assume that she's otherwise healthy and has been active throughout her pregnancy. So I um, I would not think it affects her in any way. But then again, I don't know what IHSS is. Okay. So let's say you attempt to, you induce and you attempt to intubate, but you're unable to visualize the larynx at the time of laryngoscopy. What will you do? So, So what am I seeing exactly? You can't see anything. You're looking in the mouth and you're looking to try to see the cords. You can't see it. All you see is soft tissue. Do I even see the uvula? You do see uvula, but uh, that's it. Uh, Is the patient, can I ventilate for the patient? So what would you do first when you can't see the larynx? Well, because I'm trying to do an um, RSI, I wouldn't try to ventilate for the patient just because I'm afraid that gastric content might come out and obstruct my view of the further of the larynx. Okay, so you would not attempt to ventilate. What would you do? Uh, I would keep on looking until I see, maybe change the patient's position, um, tilt their head back, open their mouth a little more, change my blade really quickly. Uh, But no, I I wouldn't really ventilate for this patient. So now the patient is getting hypoxic. The saturation is 80%. What would you do? Well, at this point, since there's compromise in the patient's respiratory status and their oxygenation, then at this point I would ventilate for the patient. So you attempt uh, to do that, and you're having trouble ventilating the patient. The SAT continues to drop. What will you do now? Uh, so I would put in a, an oral airway, a nasal trumpet. Um, I guess I can call someone, but I think I have it under control, but I think I can call another colleague to, uh, to help me with the ventilation. But, um, yeah, I think usually I can just do it with an oral airway and a nasal trumpet. So you attempt that. The SAT continues to fall. You're still not able to ventilate. The SAT is now 60%. What will you do? Uh, so I would, um, let's see, I would try to do a DL, I guess, and then hopefully I can put in the tube. Um, so I would try to see if my colleague has a fiber optic scope, and then I would use that or a glide scope or anything that can assist me, another technique that can assist me. 
So let's say you try a variety of techniques and you are now able to ventilate the patient. You attempt a fiber optic assisted intubation. Will you attempt this via the oral or nasal approach? I would choose the oral uh, because based on my experience and what I've noticed so far is that I can get the tube in more easily in the oral approach. Are there any advantages or disadvantages to the oral approach compared to the nasal approach? Um, well, the in terms of nasal for pregnant patients, uh, they can have kind of vascular congestion. So uh, in a pregnant patient, I can easily cause bleeding in the airway if I chose the nasal route, so I would choose the oral approach. Okay. So suppose instead you choose the nasal route and marked epistaxis occurs. What will you do now? Um, am I already... In the, in the airway, have I intubated the patient? Nope. You've tried to put your fiber through the nose, and there's blood everywhere. Uh, am I able to ventilate for the patient? How would you know? Uh, do I see end tidal CO2? So you're attempting to mask ventilate? Okay, so if there is a marked epistaxis, uh, I would put some pressure on the nares that's uh, having the issue, and I would ask a colleague to help me ventilate for the patient uh, orally. I can put in a um, LMA. And, uh, yeah, those are the things I would do. And what if you can't ventilate? Uh, then I would call for help because this is a situation where if I'm not able to oxygenate or ventilate for this patient and uh, she's still pregnant and the, the OB team hasn't made incision, then I would ask for their assistance to help me uh, at this point possibly doing a um, surgical airway. Okay. What is your choice for maintenance of anesthesia in this patient? Well, I guess you could choose a volatile agent. Uh, you could choose Tiva. Um, you could choose nitrous. Uh, so any of those are okay. And what would you choose? Uh, I would probably choose an inhaled agent uh, because that's what I'm used to, and the patients usually do fine. Okay. Are there any disadvantages to inhaled agents? Uh, sometimes, I guess in the textbooks, they say that uh, it can cause uterine relaxation and uh, contribute to uterine atony, but I haven't seen that, so I, I wouldn't use volatile. Would a nitrous oxygen opioid muscle relaxant combination be a good choice? Uh, yeah, I guess you could. I guess you could do that. Yeah, and then uh, for muscle relaxant, I guess I could use rocky rhodium because now that uh, a lot of places have Sagamidex, uh, I think that'll be good because I can reverse it if the OBs are quick on in their surgery. So, yeah, that could, that's a good choice. Are there any disadvantages to that choice? Um, none that I can, none that I can uh, see. If you select a volatile agent for maintenance, would you prefer isoflurane, desflurane, or sevoflurane? Uh, I would prefer uh, isoflurane. It's kind of cheap, and I can, I'm used to using it to titrate uh, anesthetics for OB patients, so I would use isoflurane. Are there any, <clears throat> are there any disadvantages to desflurane or sevoflurane? Uh, if the patient has any kind of airway compromise, uh, such as uh, lower airway issues, desflurane can cause uh, contribute to bronchospasm, and sevoflurane is uh, a little bit expensive, and it can cause some emergence delirium, so I would not choose those for that reason. But I guess any of them are fine. Okay. Immediately after delivery of the fetus, the patient's heart rate climbs to 140 beats per minute, and the blood pressure falls to 70 over 40 millimeters of mercury. What do you think is going on? Oh, I would immediately uh, give this patient phenylephrine, maybe start a phenylephrine drip. Um, I would give, uh, open my fluids wide. I would turn down my volatile agents. Uh, I would ask the OBs what's happening because this is a drastic change from what I assumed was a very stable uh, vital signs and stable surgery. What do you think is going on? Uh, I think possibly there's some bleeding the, the OBs are getting into some bleeding, and that's causing her to be hypotensive and tachycardic. But wait, did you say the heart rate goes up first or the blood pressure drops first? Which, which one happened first? You noticed them simultaneously. Okay, then I would need to determine what came first, because if the heart rate went came up first, uh, that can possibly, uh, because this patient has H IHSS, uh, maybe uh, that cardiac issue is causing the drop in blood pressure. So if that's the case, then I would, um, I would treat the, the heart rate and the blood pressure at the same time, actually. So phenylephrine would work in, in both those situations. Are there other things on your differential besides bleeding? Uh, it could be pain. It could be uh, light anesthesia. Uh, those, those are the main things, I guess. In what way does pain cause hypotension? 
Pain doesn't cause hypotension, but it can cause tachycardia, which in this patient's, uh, with this patient's heart condition, it possibly could lead to a drop in her blood pressure. How would you go about just figuring out which was the correct diagnosis? Uh, if, if the patient was bleeding, I would look over the field, and if I see the OB team losing a lot of blood, uh, then I would assume that uh, her heart rate and her blood pressure are, are um, the cause of that would be the hypovolemia from risk blood loss. Uh, other things I would do is just look at my anesthetic, what the medications I recently gave her, um, kind of look at what the OBs are doing as well as look what I, at what I'm doing to determine the cause. And how would you treat? Uh, I would give the patient uh, phenylephrine. I would give the patient fluids uh, and, if needed, blood transfusions. Okay. The neonate is limp and cyanotic and gasping intermittently with a heart rate of 60 beats per minute the baby is covered with thick meconium. An associate of yours is able to manage the mother. How will you resuscitate the baby? Well, the mother is actually my, my patient and my first priority, so I would not leave the mother at all. I would maybe ask my associate to manage the baby, but I would not leave the mother's side. If you were the associate, how would you resuscitate the baby? Uh, let's see. So uh, you said the heart rate was uh, what now? 60. 60. So I guess that's pretty reasonable. I mean, does a, does a patient have a blood pressure? This is uh, The neonate does not have a blood pressure cuff on. All you know is the heart rate is 60, gasping intermittently, and covered in thick meconium. So I would uh, assist with the baby's breathing because gasping is never a good sign of uh, being able to exchange air very well. So I would uh, ventilate for the, for the baby and also aspirate as much as I can while also calling for the NICU team to arrive as quickly as possible because uh, this is I haven't done a fellowship or anything in um, neonatal or pediatric anesthesia, so I would need a lot of help in this case. The PICU team can't be reached. What are you going to do to assist the airway? So I would ventilate uh, for the neonate to just try to do some uh, positive pressure or uh, maybe even intubate the, the neonate if I could. What is the effect of meconium aspiration? So I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm going to assume it's like a regular aspiration. Let's say the baby, this neonate was an adult. Uh, I would think that uh, the ability to oxygenate and ventilate the the patient is going to be very poor, so I would try to um, aspirate as much as I can or suction as much as I can um, to help get the lungs a little bit inflated and um, get the baby saturation and heart rate up a little more. How would you suction? I would suction if I had was if I was uh, successfully able to intubate the patient. I would suction through the endotracheal tube, but if not, then I would just suction the oral contents and put down um, a suction tube as far down as I could. When is cardiac massage indicated? Uh, do you mean CPR? I believe that this very old question is referring to CPR. Okay, so uh, when is it indicated if I can't feel a pulse? Uh, I think this heart rate is a little bit low, so I think at that point I, I would do uh, resuscitation CPR. Uh, you're saying if you, if you could not feel a pulse? Correct. Okay. So you ventilate the patient after suctioning the trachea and placing an endotracheal tube. The heart rate remains at 60 despite ventilation and CPR. What will you do next? Uh, I would give the patient some medication. Um, I think Epi is an uh, agent of choice for neonates. It works faster, and this, uh, this neonate's heart rate of 60 is very, very low, and I think that can also be contributing to the low blood pressure, possibly poor oxygenation. So I would give epinephrine. What dose of epinephrine would you give? Uh, I'm not sure in a neonate, but I, I'm used to uh, resuscitating adults, and usually they get one milligram, so I guess anywhere between 0.5 to 1 milligram IV. All right. So that is the end of the intraoperative management section. That took about 13 or 14 minutes, so we are slightly ahead of time, but that's fine. The key is getting through it all. So now I want to bring Dr. Tran back as herself uh, and ask you what are some things that you did on purpose there that you would recommend residents do not do? So the things that I've seen myself and other residents do are, um, let's see, they say things such as at my institution or I do it because that's how I'm comfortable and so that's how I'm going to approach the patient. And uh, not really clarifying exactly why from a uh, clinical point or a knowledge-based point on why the, uh, it's appropriate, the management is appropriate. 
And other things uh, I try to point out was that if the examiner asks you what would you do, you should say I would rather than you could. I guess maybe mm-hmm. you would give a definitive I would do such and such because such and such. Um, and then other things were to ask a lot of questions of the examiner. Uh, if you have a if you encounter a situation where the answers are not very clear or the question is not very clear or the details aren't there, you can either ask the examiner to repeat the question or you can assume certain things. And if the examiner has a different uh, script that he or she is following, then he or she will say, actually, this the scenario that you assumed is not correct. You would this is the assumption you should make. Uh, so. Assume if you don't know, but um, I try to illustrate not that the examinee was asking a lot of questions of the examiner, which uh, is a mistake. And uh, let's see what what else here. And then just uh, things such as uh, not really caring about some of the patient's medical conditions, such as IHSS, and changes in pregnancy can really affect uh, this, this this situation or this diagnosis. So I didn't really delve into why. I didn't state that this is an important thing to know about the patient. I just kind of guessed along as I went and managed it as if this patient didn't have it. Uh, I guess I was kind of hoping that it wouldn't really come up in the, the questions. Mm-hmm. And another thing was that when uh, I asked a question about Managing when the examiner asked me about uh, managing the mother, I was really rigid in my answer. I would say I said, "Well, actually, I would not leave the mother's side under any circumstance." So that was a really rigid answer. So, um, and you saw in this case that Dr. Walpaw actually said, "How would my associate, or how would you direct the associate to to ask or to manage the mother?" Which is a very good way of asking, getting me to answer the question if I remained um, if I remained rigid. So those are the key points or the key mistakes I try to point out. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I think you did a really great job of kind of doing those while at the same time, you know, you gave reasonable answers to a lot of the questions. So, you know, this is something we could definitely see someone doing. And it isn't even that this was necessarily or definitively a failing example, but there are a lot of these things you pointed out that you could polish up. So things I noticed, and you mentioned some of these, but you said, I guess a lot, Uh, you know, I guess I would do this. You said they, they would do this or they would do that. Uh, You said, um, assuming, you talked about the assuming, you did a lot of kind of assuming, you can ask questions, but as you said, you don't want to overdo it, you know, answer based on what you know, Uh, saying what you wouldn't do, so there was a variety of times where instead of saying what you would do, you said a a variety of things you would not do. Uh, We'll talk after Dr. Beaudry does his example, we can go back and do a little bit of talking about some of the medical um, facts here just for people's learning. Uh, one big hole, obviously, which we can come back to, was not thinking about an LMA and the difficult airway scenario. You said a lot, as I think you pointed out, I would do that because it's what I always do, or I would do that because that's what we do in my institution, right? Those are not good reasons to give on an oral board exam. Um, and then you often didn't answer the question. So if the question was, what do you think is going on, you instead said, what you would do. And so that's a key distinction. They'll ask you what would you do if they want to know what you would do. But if they say what's your differential or what do you think is going on here, they want you to give them a differential diagnosis, which you did not do. Uh, And then there was a lot of, as you pointed out, guessing at the answer. So it's really important if you don't <clears throat> if you don't know something to just say, you know, I don't know, I'd have to look that up. That's a perfectly acceptable thing to say. But guessing and saying, I don't really know, so I think I'd do this uh, is definitely problematic. Uh, guessing at the dose of epinephrine, for example, uh, is uh, definitely not a good way to go. If you don't know the dose, then you would say, you know, I don't know, I'd look it up. And that's perfectly fine. A lot of us do look up dosing of medications, especially in pediatrics when uh, it varies based on weight. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Tran, for highlighting an example of what not to do. Great, thank you. Now I want to bring in Dr. Beaudry. Dr. Beaudry, welcome to the show. Okay, well, thanks for having me. All right, so Dr. Beaudry, as I said, heads up our oral board prep course here, does a fantastic job of it, so no one better to give us the example uh, (laughs) of what we can do here. So I'm going to just hop right in and take you through it. So remember, let's just review for everybody out there, the STEM. So this is a 30-year-old, 110-kilogram, 5-foot-7-inch woman. She's having a repeat C-section at term pregnancy. Her history includes asymmetric septal hypertrophy, which was used to be known as IHSS, <clears throat> and in the setting of this question was still known as IHSS, and she has mental depression, which they mean clinical depression. Medications include propranolol and amitriptyline. 
Her chest X-ray and EKG demonstrate left ventricular hypertrophy. Her pulse is 64. Her blood pressure is 130 over 85. Her respiratory rate is 18. Her temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. And her hemoglobin is 10.4 grams per deciliter. All right. So remember, in this scenario, Dr. Baudry has already been taken through the pre-op portion of this stem for 10 minutes by the examiners, and now we are moving into the intraoperative portion management. So does this patient require any special monitoring? Um, yes, I think she does uh, require at least uh, invasive arterial line monitoring, uh, as well as uh, standard ASA monitors. All right, and what are standard ASA monitors? Uh, non-invasive blood pressure cuff uh, continuous pulse oximetry, and uh, if I were to intubate the patient and put on a general anesthesia, then entitled capnometry. Okay. A colleague suggests that you place both an arterial line, which you have said you would, but also a PA catheter. Do you agree? Uh, I don't agree with that um, for a few reasons. Um, one, uh, the patient uh, is at risk for um, uh, arrhythmias, and PA catheters can cause um, significant arrhythmias, which in this case would be life-threatening. Um, and they're not without risk. Um, risks with line placement, including um, damage to carotid artery, pneumothorax, um, tricuspid valve injury, and then, of course, the most catastrophic thing would be pulmonary artery rupture. And I just don't think that the benefits of PA uh, catheter monitoring uh, outweigh the risks. Okay. How will you induce anesthesia in this patient? Um, well, my plan for her would actually be um, epidural anesthesia for the case. Um, and I'm choosing that because, uh, in general, I like to avoid general anesthesia in pregnant patients in general. But also for her, um, in this particular patient, uh, I want to avoid any dramatic hemodynamic swings. And so I feel like I can really achieve that with a, um, a well-controlled uh, epidural anesthetic. If you were contraindicated from doing an epidural or the patient refused, how would you then induce anesthesia? Um, so I would plan for a general endotracheal anesthetic. Um, I, as I said earlier, I'd like an invasive arterial line, which I would try to place pre-induction with uh, local anesthesia. Um, and then uh, I would induce general anesthesia through uh, various uh, medications through the IV. Um, I would plan for a rapid sequence induction as well. Uh, because she's a pregnant patient, we do treat them as a full stomach. Um, and so uh, rapid IV anesthesia with a uh, rapid-acting neuromuscular blocker would be indicated. You, you mentioned you would place the arterial line pre-induction. Why would you do that? Um, well, the, my indications for placing it are for uh, hemodynamic monitoring because she is at risk for significant um, uh, arrhythmias and um, issues with um, hemodynamic uh, instability. So um, because general anesthesia can in induce those, I'd want to place that beforehand so I wouldn't have to worry about trying to place it after she's induced as well as that would delay the time that, uh, you know, the longer the time she's under general anesthesia, the more exposure to the uh, fetus, um, which we try to avoid. And what are your concerns uh, using general anesthesia since you said you would try to avoid it? What are your concerns with general anesthesia in a patient with IHSS? Uh, specifically, in a patient with IHSS, we want to avoid um, tachycardia. I want to avoid um, decreasing her preload and um, volume loading to the heart because of the risk of uh, worsening uh, collapse of the left ventricle. That's really what she's mostly at risk for is left ventricular outflow uh, obstruction. So, uh, And potent anesthetics can certainly cause that. So um, if I can avoid that, uh, I, I, ideally I would. Um, Okay. You are unable to visualize the larynx at the time of laryngoscopy. What will you do? Um, so if I'm performing direct laryngoscopy at this, at this particular juncture, uh, I would try to optimize my view as best as I can. Uh, I could even have someone uh, who may be assisting already with cricoid pressure try to help uh, bring the larynx into, um, into direct view, um, optimizing head position, perhaps putting another shoulder roll underneath, all while still maintaining whatever view I do have. Um, I would try to optimize all those things first on my, on my first attempt, uh, but if that is not successful, then whatever I happen to, whatever I'm diagnosing, whether I think her airway is anterior, um, perhaps I'd come out and then try uh, perhaps a video uh, laryngoscopy approach with uh, an angulated blade to try to get uh, a better view of an anterior airway. You're having difficulty ventilating the patient, and the saturation has fallen to 80%. What will you do? Um, so I would try to optimize ventilation um, by placing an oral airway if uh, it seems like she's having upper airway obstruction. Um, possibly a two-person uh, mask ventilation technique would be helpful. Uh, but I would want to, we really would not tolerate uh, letting her oxygen saturation uh, continue to fall. Um, so I would really try to optimize those things as quick as possible uh, and then make uh, transition to possibly a, a LMA 
laryngeal mask airway uh, as a bridge to uh, securing the airway leader. Okay, you, you are successful in being able to ventilate the patient with your attempts, and you decide to attempt a fiber optic assisted intubation. Will you select an oral or nasal approach? Um, ideally, I'd uh, choose an oral airway, or excuse me, an oral approach um, because primarily uh, if the patient's asleep, she would likely um, uh, tolerate an oral approach, plus avoiding the uh, nasal passage, which can be pretty friable and edematous in a pregnant patient is ideal. I really don't want to cause any um, significant nosebleed, which could uh, really render the fiber optic kind of useless. So if possible, I would, I would choose an oral approach. Are there any advantages to the nasal approach? Um, I believe it's a shorter uh, route and a little more direct to the, the glottis coming through the nose. Um, but again, if she's asleep and would tolerate an oral approach, I think that'd be best in this situation. All right. You do, in fact, choose a nasal approach, and you encounter marked epistaxis. What will you do now? Um, so this could seriously compromise our view of the of the uh, using the fiber optic scope. So I would uh, abandon that technique. Um, applying pressure may be helpful, but um, I would just try to secure the airway through the oral approach as quickly as possible, whether that's through, uh, again, a video laryng- laryngoscope um, or even an LMA and then assisted uh, intubation through the LMA. So I'd proceed. Great. What is your choice for maintenance of anesthesia? Um, there are several different things we could choose. I would choose a volatile-based anesthetic. And why would you choose that? Um, so uh, one... A concern is that uh, maintaining uh, or minimizing the chance of awareness um, that is a high risk in pregnancy uh, in pregnant patients having surgery. Um, it's also rapidly titratable. Um, so if, I, if there is any issues with hemodynamic instability, I could rapidly titrate um, as well as uh, there, it is a potent uterine relaxant, which can assist with uh, delivery of the, of the infant. Would a nitrous, oxygen, opioid, muscle relaxant combination be a good choice? Uh, I think it's a reasonable choice. However, uh, it wouldn't be my primary choice. Um, again, I, I prefer to avoid nitrous uh, before the infant is out um, in order to optimize oxygenation, um, as well as there's not a, a lot of reassurance um, that I'm going to be able to keep her totally amnestic with that. However, once the infant is out, I would switch to a nitrous uh, and opioid muscle relaxant technique um, to minimize uterine atony and, and try to minimize the volatile anesthetics after the infant's delivered. If you select a volatile anesthetic, which you did, would you prefer isoflurane, desflurane, or sevoflurane? I think they're all reasonable choices. My my primary uh, preference would be sevoflurane. Um, Why? I think it's a it's a good balance between um, uh, being a rapid acting anesthetic, but also it can come off quickly because uh, I do want her to wake up relatively fast at the end. And you know, given her body habitus, I don't want uh, to prolong her her emergence with a, a really fat soluble anesthetic like uh, isoflurane. Um, Sevoflurane is also a potent bronchodilator, which even though she doesn't have any history of um, hyperreactive airway disease, um, it still may help minimize any um, airway irritation possibly from desflurane. So that would be my choice. Immediately after delivery of the fetus, the patient's heart rate climbs to 140 beats per minute and the blood pressure falls to 70 over 40 millimeters of mercury. What do you think is going on? Uh, well, there are several things in my differential at this point, um, and I would try to simultaneously diagnose what's going on and treat. Um, so the first thing I, I, I would like to do is uh, look at the monitors and see um, what exactly her, her heart rate or, excuse me, her rhythm is uh, and try to rule out a malignant arrhythmia versus possibly just sinus tachycardia from multiple causes. It could be hypovolemia from bleeding. Um, she could have other uh, you know, hypoxia causing uh, arrhythmias. Um, so I would initially start with that global assessment. Okay. How would you differentiate? <clears throat> how would you differentiate what might be going on? Um, so, looking at the whole uh, picture, I'd look at the uh, field to try to determine if there's significant blood loss. I'd certainly be communicating with the uh, obstetricians about uh, uterine tone. If she has ongoing poor uterine tone and, and blood loss, that could certainly cause uh, hypotension, tachycardia. Um, other things that are more, uh, I think, uh, life-threatening as well would be again malignant arrhythmias, possibly from hypoxia or hypercarbia. Uh, I'd want to know if this was a regular or an irregular rhythm, which would uh, determine uh, my my approach. Uh, and based on those things, I would start to treat as well. Um, I thought if if I thought she was hypovolemic from bleeding, I'd open up her, her uh, IV fluids, start titrating, titrating in vasopressors. Uh, I may have to cut back on the anesthetic um, and make sure that she's not um, too well too anesthetized, causing myocardial depression. Uh, and if she looked like she had significant bleeding, I think a blood transfusion may be indicated as well. The neonate is limp and cyanotic. 
gasping intermittently with a heart rate of 60 beats per minute and covered with thick meconium. An associate is able to manage the mother. How will you resuscitate the baby? Um, so once I ensure that the mother's uh, stable and is still within uh, my proximity to manage, uh, I would uh, help assist the resuscitation of the baby. I'd first call over whoever else is available to help, and that could be an obstetrician or another nurse who's, who's uh, trained in neonatal resuscitation. Um, I would prioritize uh, oxygenation, which is typically the, the main issue with a depressed neonate. Um, I would uh, likely apply uh, oxygen through a mask, either through uh, continuous uh, either blow-by or even CPAP, uh, to assist the uh, ventilation of the infant. Uh, but knowing that now the patient also has, or that the infant has thick meconium, maybe reasonable to try to clear that out of the airway first before any positive pressure ventilation takes place. What are the effects of meconium aspiration? Um, I believe there, you know, is a possibility for uh, hypoxia just from being unable to move air through the airways. Uh, there may also be um, ARDS-like inflammatory picture later on. Uh, I don't know how soon that occurs, but um, certainly getting just the physical meconium out of the airway in order to allow uh, oxygen exchange would be my priority. When is cardiac massage or CPR indicated? Uh, I believe in the neonate, uh, once the uh, airway has been, or the oxygenation and ventilation has been ensured, if uh, bradycardia below 60 or below continues to occur, then um, chest compressions are indicated at that point. You ventilate the patient after suctioning the trachea and placing an endotracheal tube. The heart rate remains at 60 despite ventilation and CPR. What will you do next? Uh, I believe at this point um, drug therapy is indicated. Uh, I don't believe we would likely have an IV in the, in the patient at this point, so either IM or IO administration would be needed. Um, so epinephrine would be my uh, initial resuscitation drug of choice. Um, and what dose would you give? I actually don't recall the dose at this, at this point. Um, I would certainly cons- consult my uh, colleagues, and if there, a lot of times there are neonatal resuscitation cards uh, available in the uh, in the immediate uh, in the in the NICU or in the warmer, um, so I would consult that first before giving a medication. Great, and that takes us again to the end of the interoperative management portion. Thank you, Dr. Beaudry. Thank you very much. So let's now go back, and why don't you point out some of the things you tried to do that you think are best practices for residents as they prepare for their oral boards? Well, in general, I think it's very important to answer the question that you've been asked. Um, And people have different ways of approaching this and and different advice uh, given to to residents. But um, you definitely want to answer the question. But I do think it's okay to give some background as well because clearly, as you did, if I didn't give you the background, you came back later and asked for it. So um, if, if I can anticipate that you're going to want more background, I think it's reasonable to give some ahead of time and sort of justify my decision based on that. Um, so certainly answering the question. And, and if, if you realize you haven't answered the question, you can certainly come back and, and say uh, you realize you've, you've talked about a lot of different things, but ultimately you do have to come back and say, so I would give sevoflurane mm-hmm. or I would give epinephrine. Absolutely. Other things you think are important? Um, I think as, uh, I think avoiding uh, asking questions as far as there's there's a way to ask questions without asking questions directly. Um, and, and one way I, I I try to approach that is uh, I say, well, if it looks like the heart rate uh, the uh, the EKG rhythm is a malignant arrhythmia, I would want to treat that. However, if it looks like sinus tachycardia with hypotension, I would likely treated as such with volume administration or pressors. So in that way, I'm, I'm not asking if she's having an arrhythmia, but I'm sort of saying if the possibility exists, at least you know that I'm thinking about it. I think that's exactly right. That, that is a perfect way if you're not sure. You're letting them know what you're assuming without even saying the words I'm assuming. Uh, and at the same time, you're demonstrating that you know how to deal with this if that is indeed what it is. And you open up, they can, of course, always say, no, that's the uh, you. You see that it's not a malignant rhythm. You see that it's sinus tachycardia, and make you deal with that if they want to do that. So I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, you got me on the uh, drug dose for epinephrine, which I did not recall. Um, and I think it's always a good idea to just stop and say uh, what you would normally do in real life, because this this should reflect your everyday practices. And you would never give a drug that you were not familiar with. Um, how much to give and how to give it. So it's very, very reasonable to say I would stop and consult my colleagues or I'd consult any resource that you have uh, before administering any drugs. So 
Um, even if you don't know, don't make it up. Tell them what you would normally do, which would be to consult another resource. Yeah, I can't agree more. I think that you're way better off saying, I don't know, I'd have to look it up, than guessing or making something up. Uh, that's going to get you in a lot more trouble. So great. So other things I saw <clears throat> that I thought were really good, you repeatedly referred back to the patient and patient factors. So you said in the setting of this patient with uh, HOCAM or with IHSS, she's at risk for arrhythmias given her heart disease. So that shows that you're not just giving rote answers, you're thinking about this specific patient and that's going to really impress. You mentioned not only you didn't kind of fall for the how would you induce anesthesia. You took a step back and said, you know, I wouldn't induce general anesthesia. I would do an epidural. And that, they can try to trap you in that. They can give you a scenario where you would never induce anesthesia. They give you a patient with a K of seven and say, how would you induce? And the answer would be, I would not induce. I wouldn't even take this patient to the operating room until we dealt with this. So you caught that, you picked up on it. And then you didn't just say you would do an epidural, but you gave your reasons why, and they were very solid. You... uh, mentioned the advantage uh, the advantages to the nasal approach uh <clears throat> and to the oral approach so you had that you chose what you would say and then when i pushed you a little bit and said you know why what would be the advantage of the other way you were able to do that uh instead of just saying well it's kind of what i like to do or what i always do uh again you referred back to the patient <clears throat> you mentioned you know given her body habitus i would keep this in mind and that in mind so again showing that you're thinking about this specific patient you mentioned a couple times you know i'd look at the monitors and see what else was going on so that's crucial and i always emphasize to residents when they give you something like hypotension tachycardia hypoxia whatever it is you've got to look at your monitors both to know that you're paying attention to what else could be happening with this patient is everything crashing or is it just one system and also because as you mentioned it's going to help you with your differential if the patient's uh hypotensive and tachycardic and you look at your ekg strip and they're in afib with rvr that's a that's going to help you know what's going on as opposed to sinus tachycardia so always always have that reflexive i would look at my monitors and see what else see what the vitals look like make sure the other vitals were stable calling for help is essential you're almost always on oral boards i think never going to get help when you call for it but always key to know that you would call for it and then you mentioned the epi thing so really nice job uh dr tran anything you noticed that you want to point out that uh, dr Beaudry did well no, i thought uh, i thought he answered the questions very well and um things that i would uh, in addition to answering the questions correctly like he did uh and for people who are listening to the podcast uh he looked directly at dr walpaw when he answered the questions he sat up uh, nice and straight and didn't do any fidgeting and uh it was just a good communication nonverbal communication that he did which is also very key uh in passing the oral boards yeah i agree with tina's comments um you know ideally this you know two points really i think um again we want to emphasize this should reflect your everyday practices and so taking a step back to what you mentioned about the monitors um that's something that we just do intuitively um Mm -hmm. you you don't know you're doing it until you stop and you do this practice but um but if you don't say on the exam you're not gonna make it clear that you would do that but um, really it should be everything that you normally do in your everyday practice If, if the if you hear the saturation monitor um declining you always look up it's just a reflex but you have to verbalize that uh and to what tina was saying uh, this should be a conversation uh this even though it's an exam i think if you keep it more conversational uh things tend to flow a bit better and you're more confident in your answers uh as opposed to feeling you're just trying to answer the question and move on it really should be a conversation and i think the examiners probably prefer that too yeah i would agree and i think you point out some really key things uh Tina, you pointed out the eye contacts and all of that, which is really essential. And then, Steve, the um, the idea of really thinking of it as a conversation and doing what you would do. And it's why I actually love this, even for CA1. So some people say, well, you know, CA1 shouldn't be doing oral board practice. But I disagree. I think that the advantage of doing this is not to put a lot of pressure on a CA1 that you have to be able to ace these questions, but it makes you start thinking about what you're doing in the operating room uh, instead of just doing it automatically without really thinking about it. So it's actually a pretty good way to structure learning, and I know you're working on that uh, here, and it's, it's really a fantastic uh, curriculum that you're working on. So let's just go through briefly and see, are there any, any kind of key uh, learning points just from the, the kind of topic that we want to point out? One that I mentioned before is that the difficult air, airway algorithm would say that when you enter that cannot intubate, cannot ventilate situation, your first uh, step in terms of 
trying to save yourself, as as you said, Steve, when you were doing your, your go-through, is to put an LMA in. So if you can't intubate, you can't ventilate, uh, and you've tried, you know, you've tried two-hand ventilation and all that, but if you still can't intubate, you can't ventilate, then you're going to put an LMA in. If that works, you're no longer in an emergency. If it doesn't work, now you're truly in the emergency pathway where you are going to go down uh, towards trying something else, but if that doesn't work, something else meaning like video laryngoscopy or fiber optic, but if that doesn't work, you're heading toward a surgical airway. Any other thoughts on that or any other kind of learning points you guys want to point out? No, and I've, I've seen it come up where, um, you know, ventilating, a mask ventilating or even placing an LMA in a pregnant patient, um, you know, that question has thrown off residents because they have been taught not to ventilate a pregnant patient because of the risk of aspiration. But uh, it's important to emphasize in your mind when you're taking this exam, you have to think of, you know, what's most dangerous to this patient. And, you know, a saturation of 80% in her given her cardiovascular disease, is more likely going to cause harm than the potential risk for aspiration. Um, so I try to emphasize when I'm debriefing with the residents that um, there's going to be bad and worse, and you just have to pick the one that's less bad. And so um, do what you have to do to, to save her life. And if but there's always a possibility of aspiration, but you can manage that. And sometimes it's sort of a, a revelation to them that they will have to do something that they're not comfortable with. And that's really, again reflects real life absolutely so i totally agree <clears throat> similarly uh or other things that i think you know we could mention here so ihss now more commonly known as hokum uh but the management for that as you said during your your go through here you really want to focus on keeping people full you want that left ventricle full and so ways to get that are increasing afterload reducing or avoiding tachycardia and reducing contractility. So you don't want to give a presser like epinephrine uh, or norepinephrine if you don't have to, which would increase contractility uh, and heart rate. You, phenylephrine is a great drug here. It's going to, if anything, cause reduced, blood, uh, reduced heart rate. It's going to cause an increase in afterload, and it does not have any beta action, so it's not going to cause increased contractility. So it's kind of the perfect presser for these patients. Any other thoughts on, on hokum? Um, I think, you know, general versus regional anesthesia always comes up for um, pregnant patients with cardiovascular disease. And um, there's no right or wrong answer as, as again, in, in life uh, in, in anesthesia practice. But um, I think the majority, my, my gut feeling is that most people would probably induce general anesthesia because we feel like you can control things a bit better. You can put in invasive lines and uh, you can monitor or you can control hemodynamics a little bit better, um, but realize that provided there's no other contraindication to regional anesthesia, um, it is a decent option for this case. Uh, I would avoid single-shot spinal anesthesia or even combined spinal epidural uh, anesthesia because of the risk for dramatic hypotension, um, tachycardia, that would really be life-threatening. But um, the flip side would be a slowly controlled epidural anesthetic, especially if she was, um, you know, in this situation, she's a bit obese potentially challenging airway, and you, if you don't want to even deal with that, uh, I think it's certainly a reasonable choice. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. And what I love is that, you know, it's a good learning point for oral boards. You should be able to justify your choice. It's just almost never a 100% wrong choice. There are sometimes, obviously, if a patient's cave was seven and you said you do sucks, that would be wrong. But in the setting of most of these things, you can pick epidural, you can pick GA, Either one would have been fine for this case as long as you can justify it. And so that's the key is they're going to call you out. They're going to challenge you. They're going to push you a little bit. Why would you do that? Why not this? But that's okay as long as you can justify it. You don't, you don't have to say there's no or not a right answer per se as much as it is they want to hear your reasoning. All right. Dr. Tran, Dr. Beaudry, anything else you think we should highlight here before we wrap? Well, I think in regard to um, just practicing for the oral boards, um, there's a couple of things that I like to recommend. Uh, one is, you know, if you have the opportunity when you're pre-oping with your attending the night before just to throw out some scenarios about, you know, what else could we do or what could we do differently for this case, um, even if you're going to do it the same way every time, if let's say there's a particular case that you've done 100 times and you always do GA and you always use isoflurane and an arterial line, uh, it is fun to, to think about... Um, how else could we do this? And you can even do that on your own. So even the next day during the case, uh, you can think about perhaps it's a it's a knee replacement. And even though you've put them to sleep, just like every other time, you think, well, what else could I do? If I was going to do a spinal anesthetic, what would I use? Um, how would I dose it? What level do I need? 
Um, are there any contraindications to that? And um, because it does get you to think outside of your your typical everyday practice um, and your experience as a resident, and it would be expected on the exam that you'd have some knowledge of other ways of doing doing a case. So, like for this case in particular, again, even though most people would likely do general anesthesia, you know, is regional anesthesia even an option? And so, it is a good ex- exercise to go through and, and get used to that, even if you would never do something different. Absolutely. Uh, that's what residency or training of any kind is for, is to really think through and practice and use your, use your skills and knowledge and push yourself. Don't fall into that, that kind of you know, trap of being able to just cruise because you know how to do a few things. You really want to be in a situation where you're practicing stuff so that when you're out there on your own, you're ready to go. So I totally agree with you. All right, Dr. Tran, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great. Thank you for having me. I hope it's beneficial for everyone, to all our residents, and uh, help them have a successful oral board session. And Dr. Beaudry, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thanks to both of you. I really hope we can do another one again soon. So that is it for today. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can check out this and every episode at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com where you can also leave comments. So for this episode, let us know. Was this helpful? How do you practice for oral boards? Remember, the comments you leave are not just for us, but also, of course, for everyone else. So you may have some tips on how to study for oral boards that will help other people out there. Let us know what you thought of the episode. If you have any particular tidbits or uh, recommendations based on this particular stem, maybe you would manage a patient with hokum who is pregnant differently, let us know. We can all learn from each other's knowledge. You can also, of course, reach me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And on the website, you can join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner where you can click and enter your email address, and then you'll get notifications anytime there's a new episode and any other interesting facts that I send around. If you are enjoying the podcast and you're a regular listener, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes, find the podcast, and leave a rating and a comment. It helps other people find the show. All right, that's it for today. For Dr. Stephen Beaudry and Dr. Tina Tran, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.